Hello, and welcome to the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing podcast series, The Path to Wellbeing in Law. I'm your co-host, Chris Newbold, Executive Vice President of Alps Malpractice Insurance. And as you know, our goal here on the podcast is simple, to introduce you to interesting leaders doing incredible work in the space of well-being within the legal profession, and in the process, build and nurture a national network of well-being advocates intent on creating a culture shift within our profession. Once again, I'm joined by my friend, Bree Buchanan. Bree, we're 10 episodes into the podcast. They, they said it couldn't, it, it would never happen, but we are here. What a milestone. I'm curious what your impressions have been thus far uh, within the podcast experience. Yeah. Hello, everybody. And I think it's been great. Uh, one of the things I've enjoyed so much is being able to really get to know and dive deep with some of these people who are really leaders in the well-being space and get to, to know them a little bit more. I We get to interact with them by Zoom or email, but this is a really unique opportunity. So it's been great. And I can't believe we already have 10 episodes um, in the can, so to speak, uh, time flies. So this has been great. It has. I, I, I Like you, I, I like the fact that we get to have more in-depth conversations with what I would call the movers and shakers of, of the well-being movement. And it really allows us to kind of delve into some issues a little bit deeper than we could probably do through uh, CLEs or some other uh, forms. So, um, well, let's, let's shift to our topic today. We, we, we shift the conversation a bit to what, what one of the, the foundational bedwork, bedrocks of the well-being movement, and that's our lawyers assistance programs. And we're just, we're very excited to welcome our friend and fellow task force uh, on lawyer well-being member, Terry Harrell, who resides in the Hoosier state of Indiana. Uh, Bree, I'm going to pass the baton to you because you've known Terry for a considerable amount of time and, and have worked with her on a variety of different issues. So if you could introduce Terry, we'll get the, we'll get the conversation started. I would love to. And Terry occupies a very special place in my life because she was really the person who was responsible for getting me into this. <laughs> I'll say a little bit more about that in just a minute. But Terry Harrell is a lawyer and a licensed therapist, and she's been the executive director of the Indiana Judges and Lawyers Assistance Program, uh, might refer to it as JLAP, for 20 years, following a decade of work in the mental health field. Uh, Terry is the past chair of the ABA's Commission on Lawyers Assistance Program. She served in that role from 2014 to 27. And then at some point near the end of that, she snookered in me into <laughs> taking the, the reins for the next three years. So um, yeah, she was really instrumental in getting me, and she was, you are, Terry, the person who got me into this, so, so thank you. Um, You're welcome, Bree. I do remember with the task force saying, you've got to come do this. You have to come to this meeting. We're going to form this national task force. That's right. I'm wondering whether you'd kill me later or, or thank me. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the thank you. Um, and so as Terry became a leader in this space, that was certainly recognized in the ABA president at that time um, appointed, it was Hillary Bass out of Florida, appointed Terry to lead the working group to advance well-being in the legal profession, which was an all-star group of people who were responsible for launching the ABA's Employer Well-Being Pledge um, two years ago, which has been wildly successful. And we have now about 200 signatories of some of the 
largest legal employers on the planet. And Terry continues to be very involved in that. And she's been a key partner uh, within the National Task Force since its inception back in 2016. So um, Terry, what did I miss? <laughs> and welcome to the program. You did a wonderful job. Thank you, Bree. Happy to be here. And I need to tell both of you, I hadn't realized you'd done 10 already. I was aware of your podcast, but uh, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. So Terry, I'm going to ask, start off asking you the question that we ask everybody um, is what brought you to the lawyer well-being movement? You know, what experiences in your life are behind your passion in this work? And we found that uh, people who really get involved and in sort of the center of the circle of what we're doing tend to have some real passion that's driving what they do. So what's yours? Yeah, when that question makes you think back. And um, I think it started young because I think my dad was a lawyer. And I remember running with my dad and one of his partners in high school. I loved doing that. Of course, we called it jogging. I won't tell you how old I am, but that kind of gives it away. We would go jogging. And they would talk about how that helped them to stay more focused at work and improve their mood. And um, <clears throat> as a child of a lawyer, I can testify that evenings went better when my dad went stopped by the YMCA on his way home and <laughs> exercised first before he came home. He was a trial lawyer. And I think that I learned early that transition from work to home can be really helpful. Uh, then I had a good, in high school, I had a friend who died by suicide and then the father of a good friend also died by suicide. Um, so I think that sparked my interest in mental health and sure. my decision to major in psychology uh, in undergrad. But then I went to law school and actually I love law school. I'm probably a geek. I don't, there aren't many people who will say <laughs> that, but I made really good friends. I enjoyed it. I uh, went to work in big law where I saw both some examples of probably good well-being practices and then some very bad practices. But I also learned that for me, that work was not where my passion was. And it's, uh, I learned what a burden it is to try and work that hard about something that you're not really passionate about. Yeah. Uh, and Bree, I know you understand this because you and I have spent our Christmas break working on policies before. And you <laughs> have spent, I know, breaks working on tax documents. And you only do that if you really, really care about what you're working on. Right. Um, to do that about something that isn't terribly meaningful to you is kind of torture to me at least. <laughs> uh, so then I went back after I worked in law for a couple of years, went back, got my MSW, worked in mental health in a variety of positions, uh, which was great, loved it. But then I heard about this lawyer assistance program and I thought, wow, I'd always wondered if I would get back to my legal roots somehow uh, and started working at the lawyer assistance program. Absolutely loved it. First as the clinical director, then as the, I became the executive director. And then it was really through the ABA, Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs, that I started thinking you know, more broadly about lawyer well-being. Um, at the lab, we were already thinking, we can talk more later, but we were thinking about ways to talk about prevention with lawyers um, a little bit. Didn't have a lot of capacity and bandwidth to do that. But it was really through the commission that I started thinking about structures, the, 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 the fishbowl in which we are swimming, as opposed to just dealing with each individual lawyer himself or herself, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. At some point you want to go get tired of pulling people out of the stream and you want to go upstream and stop what the real problem is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Terry, many people attribute the kind of the start of or the start of the well-being movement around the report that the National Task Force released back in, you know, surprisingly 2016. Um, you know, and the 44 recommendations and, and and that, but we all know that kind of the forerunner to that was the work of the lawyer assistance programs. And so I was hoping that you could kind of give our listeners some perspective of, of just kind of, you know, that kind of the history of the lawyer assistance programs and and, and how well-being uh, has, has kind of uh, played a role in what you do while it's probably taken on a more prominent role of late, it's still been kind of a centerpiece of, of what ultimately uh, the programs were designed to do. Yeah, I would love to do that. Uh, it begins to make me feel like I'm an I'm a old timer, but you know, when you've been doing it for 20 years, that happens, I guess. Um, yeah, because I mean, the LAP idea of lawyers helping lawyers, which is originally what we called a lot of the LAPs, lawyers helping lawyers has been around for many decades, at least since the 70s, and I believe much earlier than that, but it was a very informal, just volunteer, and it was mostly lawyers in recovery from addictions, trying to help other lawyers who were struggling with addictions and primarily alcohol. That's what they were. But then in the 80s, staffed programs started popping up. People started realizing, you know, this could be a lot more helpful if there was a phone number, one phone number to call, one person who was the point person, because it was kind of hit and miss with the volunteer network on who, who found them and who didn't find them. So states around the country started creating uh, lawyer assistance programs where they'd have an office with a phone number and a person assigned there. Um, at that time, the ABA formed a commission. It was called the Commission on Impaired Lawyers. This tells you how far we've come. Um, and, and it was about helping impaired lawyers. It was very basic. And the primary goal was to help states create a formal program to do this work. I forget exactly when somewhere in the 80s, I believe, or early 90s, we changed it to the Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs, which I think is a much better name. Um, and I don't know exactly the timing, but by 1997, when Indiana created our program, uh, the stronger programs all over the country were what we called broad brushed in that they dealt with mental health issues, including substance use issues, but much broader. I think the earlier programs probably did assist a few lawyers with mental health problems, but that's not what they were known for. And over the 90s, I would say in early 2000, almost I think all the labs today are broad brushed and that they will help lawyers with almost any problem that they come against, not just substance abuse problems. But that myth still persists today. And even though Indiana, for an example, we've been a broad brush program since 1997. And yet I will go out and speak and some lawyer will walk up to me and say, wow, I wish last year I'd known that you dealt with problems other than alcohol because you know, Wilma Flintstone was grieving her husband's death and we thought she was really depressed, but because we know she didn't drink, we never thought to call the lawyer assistance program. Mm -hmm. So that kills me. And yeah. I want to get that word out there. I'm sure Bree has heard those stories as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the lab was doing our work, helping lawyers who were either brought to our attention, who came to us voluntarily wanting help. And we, we all along, I kept thinking, you know, we should also be doing some more prevention work. You know, I'd like to offer some, you know, a lawyer's running group or do some more education out, get some more education out there. I couldn't believe how many years I've been doing JLAP 101 presentations. And one of our state bar presidents said, Terry, what if we create a wellness committee at the state bar? Will that, will that um, 
upset the lap? Will we be taking your turf? And I said, absolutely not. You can help us because you can do more of those proactive things like you know, have a healthy eating seminar for lawyers or sponsor 5Ks and do some more of that uh, front end work than what the lab has the bandwidth to do. And we worked together very closely. I mean, I was the, uh, a co-chair that first year. Um, I'm back being chair again, co-chair again this year. Um, and in fact, the way it works is the wellness committee supports a lawyer uh, 5K run but you know who's there at 6.30 in the morning to organize the whole thing? It's always staff from the Lawyer Assistance Program. So we've really worked hand in hand and we're still having discussions about how do we work together to be able to do more and not duplicate efforts and not you know, cause each other any harm, but actually do more because there's certainly lots more work to do, um, tons more work. Yeah. And Terry, I'm interested in, because you've been so central in the space and know all the players and people, um, since, particularly since the report has come out, what do you see in the area of, I think of it as prevention work, but we, a lot of times it comes under the heading of well-being or wellness. What are some of the things that you're seeing that the LAPS are doing now? I think we're offering, we're, we're increasing the breadth of our programming, which is good. And we're focusing our marketing efforts, if you will, on those things. Mm -hmm. I know in our lab, you know, we, we found that our care for the caregivers support group is one of the more popular groups that and our grief group have been more popular and they've helped people to understand that there are certain issues that every, you know, may impact everyone or at least any one of us can encounter. Um, and by being part of some of these wellness efforts with the state bar, I think people started to perceive us more as the well-being people and it's a good thing to be seen hanging out with those people as opposed to in the past when they kind of saw us as the as the alcohol police and they really didn't want to be seen with us you know or I would walk into a cocktail party and someone would put his drink behind his back and it's like we're not the alcohol police we're all about well-being um, and I think that has started to come through um, and it's helped with collaborations um, with the report coming out with these very specific recommendations um, I was able to talk to the state bar and the LAP and the state bar put on a symposium for legal employers, talking specifically about the recommendations for legal employers and what they can do to improve well-being. That was fabulous. Actually, we had wonderful speakers from a lot of the law firms and corporate counsel groups around the state. Um, that was just great. And we're still getting our normal referrals. And of course, those remain confidential, but we're doing so much more that doesn't have to be confidential, like offering yoga and offering a mindfulness session um, that I think we're more visible to. We're not this mysterious hidden group any longer. Um, with more emphasis on well-being and the task force report coming out and the pledge from the ABA, even my own Supreme Court decided to create a well-being committee specifically for Supreme Court employees. So we're a 250 person group ourselves. Uh -huh. Um, so we've added that. So I mean, I just think the raising the visibility and the emphasis on well-being has had incredible results for us. And Terry, as you as you think about, I mean, I, I'm 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 not as familiar with the lawyer assistance programs, although I, 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 you know, being on the malpractice prevention side, we certainly have partnered with 
and we work a lot in rural states, right? So we were aware of certain states that still did not have a lawyer assistance program. And my sense is now that I think all 50 states actually have one. And, and I, I was just, you know, not knowing when you started with the Indiana program, I would just kind of love to hear your perspective on, you know, where we were then versus kind of where you, where, where we are now from a, from an evolution uh, perspective. You got to be pretty excited because it feels like there's a lot more, you know, with, with the, with, with the innovations going on in the well-being side, I like to always think of the lawyer assistance programs as you, know, you guys were you guys were the heroes in the trenches every day, right? And and I, I think that there's a great appreciation for the work that you do. But it's been a you know it's 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 been a it's been a, a lot of work to get to the point where the issue has become you know kind of back on the front burner uh, as a kind of a national topic of discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even when I, when we created our program in 97, um, there were still a lot of states that did not have a program at all. Now, there were a lot that did. Indiana is rarely first, um, <laughs> but we're rarely last. And we had, <coughs> there are also states that only serve lawyers. They didn't serve law students. They didn't serve judges. Um, so I'll make a plug for my state. I was very proud of my state that they looked around and said, Looks like the better programs serve law students, lawyers, and judges, the entire legal community, and their broad brush. And we made that decision. But it took a while into the 2000s, I'd say. Now we're at the point where almost, I think almost every state, let me phrase it this way. I think every state has a lawyer assistance program. Some are more robust than others. And there's a fair number that still have only one employee and there might be one that's still voluntary, but there's definitely someone we could get a hold of in every state that is concerned with lawyers' assistance. So we've come so, so far. And I remember in the day when it was hard. I mean, we knocked on doors to get, we wanted to get our message out at various lawyer conferences, and we really had to work at that. And today, you know, everyone wants a well-being program at their conference whether it's prosecutors or defenders or trial attorneys, judges, everyone wants a well-being program. And so now, I mean, I've been talking to my staff about we may have to start to get selective because <laughs> um, we're doing so many pre presentations throughout the year that, you know, we've got to make sure we have time to take care of our clients as well. <laughs> That's the most important part of what a lap does. Um, but it's a, great, it's a great problem to have to work at. And I think a lot of that credit goes to the well-being movement that it's on people's radar. So organizations that I wasn't even aware of who didn't never thought to contact are now contacting us. That's, and that's huge. Yeah, that is. Yeah, and let's, let's, let's take a quick break. And I, because one of the things I'd love to come back and, and talk about is just kind of how the demand has evolved uh, over time. Because I got to think with COVID and, and other things, the demand was already high, but we're, we're at a at an even interesting, uh, more interesting place with, with, with the pandemic. So let's hear from one of our sponsors, take a quick break and, and we'll be back. Your law firm is worth protecting and so is your time. Alps has the quickest online application for legal malpractice insurance out there. Apply, see rates and find coverage all in about 20 minutes. Being a lawyer is hard our new online app is easy. Apply now at applyonline.alpsnet.com. Welcome back, everybody. And we are so honored today to have Terry Harrell, who is a really a leader, the leader, one of the leaders in the 
uh, lawyer's assistance program world, and she has worked at every level of that um, that experience. And Terry has been the um, executive director of the Indiana JLAP for the past 20 years, so brings a wealth of experience. So I'm, I'm guessing, Terry, that you have sort of a finger on the pulse of how things are going with the LAPs during COVID um, and the level of demand and how they're meeting it and how they're, what they're seeing. I mean, early on in the pandemic, what I knew in talking to the LAP programs is that they felt that people were hesitating to call, that the demand went down at first, but I don't think that's the case now. What are you seeing? I think you're right on spot, Bree. Um, I think when my experience, and I think I heard this echoed correctly, you're correct with the other laps is that when last spring calls dropped off. Um, and I think two reasons, one, all the law students got sent home from law school, you know, and we couldn't do our on-site support groups for law students any longer or meeting one-on-one -on -one with law students. And those calls, I mean, they went dead silent. We heard nothing from the law students for months, but the lawyers and judges also dropped off. And my, I don't know, my thinking is, and this is just Terry Harrell speaking, I think the lawyers and judges were busy trying to help others, trying to help their firm or their court staff deal with what was going on at work, trying to help their families, um, trying to help their communities figure out what had to happen. And they just, you know, they, as usual, as lawyers will do, they put themselves last and they just sucked it up and did the work they had to do because as the, as the pandemic continued, and I think this is true for all the laps, I know it's true for us, the calls began to come back. Um, lawyers and judges are calling us, we're starting to have our normal calls again, as well as, it's funny, the COVID stress calls don't come in directly. Um, someone will call me concerned about another person, say another person lawyer in the firm. And then next thing I know, we're talking about well, how is how is this isolation and the pandemic, how's that affecting you? And next thing I'm talking to that lawyer about wow. their stressors. Yeah. Um, so we, we've all noticed that they kind of come in sideways because lawyers, as usual, are busy trying to help other people. Yeah. Um, but they're getting to us now. And I'm, I'm really pleased with that, that our normals are back up to normal. Yeah. Um, what I would say, I hate to say there's a bright spot in a pandemic because there's nothing good about this pandemic. But... One of the thing, I guess a silver lining of a bad experience has been our support groups. Um, we had before pandemic, we had, I don't know, eight maybe support groups going around the state. But if you lived in a smaller community, there wasn't one close to you. We just couldn't justify having support groups in some of those communities that had fewer lawyers in them. And even like if you're in Indianapolis, to get to the downtown support group, if you work on the north side to get done with your work day and drive 45 minutes to downtown Indianapolis for a support group, wasn't real and then 45 minutes home wasn't real realistic so when the pandemic hit we moved everything to zoom you know we talked about it but we'd never done it we just did it because we didn't have any choice right and it's been great because we've been able to include people from more rural areas it no longer matters geographically and so people have come to groups that normally wouldn't have and they've been incredible much more effective than i would have guessed um, we also added a group that just called our connection group and so everyone who is practicing law or going to law school or serving as a judge during the pandemic is eligible. You know, we're all eligible. It's just to connect with other members of the legal community. And it's robust. And they, people get on there and talk about the challenges that they're facing. They also laugh as most support groups. They also <laughs> laugh and have a good time. Um, so, so I think when it's over, we'll go back to having some in person. I mean, because 
they're gone at some time there's nothing like a hug or a arm on your shoulder but i think we'll continue with the zoom support group meetings because they are more effective than i ever would have guessed and it allows us to get to those people in rural communities i mean this may be something chris for those states like North Dakota and Montana, where you just don't have big populations of lawyers, if they can do things by Zoom, I have been shocked at how well that has gone. Yeah, I, I think I, I think you raise a good point, because I, I think that in some ways, the legal profession is now more connected uh, because of uh, everyone's, the, because of the necessity of having to utilize technology to connect with one another. Um, you know, one of the things that I've seen in the Bar Association world is that fairly significant rise in uh, participation in CLE program. Obviously that all went virtual, uh, but they're seeing, uh, particularly in rural states, record numbers of people sitting in on, uh, on you know, getting their CLEs and, and, and connecting in, a, in an entirely different way. So the, that's gonna be really interesting to see how that plays out from a, from a support perspective uh, in the long-term. But I, you know, like you said, I, I, I'd be rather optimistic that, uh, that, that we feel like there's people are not as far away, uh, even though we're physically not together, uh, we, there's, there's a connection points that, uh, that we can certainly um, you know, re rely on as we move forward. Terry, Absolutely. Terry, I know that, and just to emphasize and reemphasize as those in the lab world always do, that everything is confidential about the calls, 100%. Um, but of course, abiding by confidentiality, can you talk about maybe any trends that you have seen in the kind of calls that you're getting? I mean, since, the, since they've started to pick back up, do you see more extreme situations? Um, have the type of calls changed or are you just the, the going back to what they were before? I would say them it's really, it's amazing, but I think they're kind of going back to the mix we had before, um, which has tended to be more heavy on mental health recently than addiction, which is kind of interesting. Um, although sometimes we find out there's also an addiction issue there, of course, but it's kind of been the same mix of, you know, lawyer with dementia, demeanor issues, depression, alcohol. We have had two, Again, thinking about confidentiality, I have to think what I say, but we've had two pretty dramatic relapse situations. And I, I don't know if those were due to, co to COVID or not. It's too new, but they were two people that we thought had a really solid recovery. So I will be, over time, I'm sure we'll figure some of that out and see if that played into it or it was just, you know, the course of addiction itself. Sure. Um, but yeah, I haven't seen a, t a big change in the type of calls we get other than it's almost like the, the pandemic is just one more layer, you know, it's one more stressor on top of everything else. Mm -hmm. Terry, I'm curious uh, uh, that, you know, the, the, the pandemic, I think for a lot of people has been an opportunity to kind of reflect on their current state of life. Right. And I, I'm, I'm just curious, kind of curious on your, particularly with your, you know, kind of your social work background, your, you know, your, just your perspective on, uh, you, know, you know, people are evaluating all parts of, you know, the, you know, their family, their professional life, their relationships, and, and, you know, how that ultimately, you know, I'm sure there would be books and books written uh, post-pandemic about, you know, the impacts of that uh, as, a, as a reflection point. I'm just kind of curious on your perspective of, you know, kind of lawyers in particular, and kind of, you know, as they had to kind of work from home and, 
and not be as connected. And, you know, some, I, I've heard some lawyers say, I, I really never want to go back to an office again. Right. And, and so right. I'm just kind of curious on that, on, 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 on your, your perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, like you say, it'll be years before we know the total impact, but I definitely think it has caused people to think about what do I really need to do? Do I need to be going this hard? Do I need to travel that much? Mm -hmm. Maybe I want to take a job where I can work. If my employer isn't going to let me continue to stay at home, maybe I'll quit that job and find a job that allows me to work from home. Um, I'm aware of at least one retirement that was not caused by the pandemic, but hastened by some reflect, you know, having that time to reflect on what's really important in life. The lawyer decided, you know what, I was going to wait two more years, but, but why, why am I doing that? I want to spend this time with my family. I'm going to go ahead and retire. So I think there'll be changes in workplace policies and mm -hmm. I don't know how that will all fold out. Yeah. And I think there'll be some career changes because I think there will be some people who have decided what's most important to them, uh, that there may be some shuffling around. People may make some career decisions because they've had time to sit with themselves and decide what's really meaningful and what works for them instead of just jumping into the daily grind thoughtlessly every day. Yeah. And employers we'll may changes. need to, employers may need to adapt as well. Right. And it's, again, I think it's going to be very interesting just to kind of see, you know, if, if nothing else, the work-life balance has been kind of called into question as we think about well-being as a, as, you know, wanting people to feel like they've made a good decision and are professionally satisfied in the practice of law, you know, having a pandemic in the midst of, of a career has, a, has, a, has an opportunity for you to kind of rethink your position in that world. It really does. I mean, there's some dramatic instances, you know, I've heard of lawyers who went into the courtroom and the judge said, I won't let you go forward unless you take your mask off where they thought it was, you know, something like that can make you think, well, is this really worth risking my life to do big things? And then maybe employers will change, you know, it's turned out, you know, there's some people who are very rigid about, I want you at your desk working 8.30 to 4.30 or whatever, very rigid hours. And they may have learned that actually, if you tell people this is the work you need to get done, but you can be flexible about when you do it and it still gets done, that may open up some possibilities for people. Um, yeah, I know it will be very interesting to see what happens. Terry, you've also been you've been very involved in the in in the work to create systemic change in the legal profession, both as it relates to well-being and, and both in Indiana and on the, on the national front. Could you, could you talk uh, with us about some of the projects that you're currently involved with, again, uh, both at home and, and on a national level? I would love to. Um, Bree mentioned earlier that Hillary Bass created the working group to advance well-being in the legal profession, but that was a working group that was sunset a couple of years ago. But one of the major initiatives of that group was the uh, ABA Wellbeing Pledge. And that pledge was meant to continue and to continue to be there to encourage and support employers to make changes in the workplace to benefit lawyer well-being. So COLAP took that under their umbrella and created a well-being committee at COLAP, which I'm still involved in, um, and particularly involved in our subcommittee that's working on that pledge. Um, we're still, we have, I don't have a current number. It's approximately 200 people have signed the pledge. That's a very rough number, but more people are signing on. We're starting to get feedback on what the legal or employers are doing. And I wanna stop, I, it's easy to say firm. We mean legal employers. This is for anyone who employs lawyers in their workplace. 
whether it's a government agency, uh, law school, law firm, in-house counsel, you know, it's broad, broader than just law firms. I want to be clear about that. But we've seen some big changes. We have changed, seen law firms are updating their policies to be respectful for, of mental health and encourage people to get the help they need when they need it. I've seen law firms hire well-being directors, and I've seen them go a different way and hire an actual in-house therapist to be available to their staff. Um, there's just been an explosion of well-being activities and programs in the law schools that you go on and on about that. Now, I do think most of those are aimed at the students, which is great, but I think we need to circle back and remind the law schools that they also employ a whole lot of lawyers on staff and make sure that, that well, those well-being initiatives are also including their own employees. Um, so I'm not sure it's been interpreted that way at the law schools. Um, legal employers are doing things to reduce the emphasis on alcohol, either by having events that are not built around alcohol or by having more options available or limiting the amount of alcohol served. Um, I think there's still a lot of thought going into how to do that in, by the legal employers. All legal employers are offering some sort of well-being training, whether that's learning about mindfulness, financial wellness, nutrition, um, learning about your lawyer assistance program and your EAP. Uh, a fair number are offering some fitness coaching kind of alternatives. Um, there's a lot of creative work being done. And I know Bree's been following some of those signatories as well. She's also on that well-being committee. Um, it's fun to see, and I'm, I just can't wait to see what else comes out of those initiatives with the legal employers. Um, I'm going to talk about the policy committee briefly, but did you all have anything you wanted to say about the, the pledge? I know, Bree, you've been really involved in that as well. No, but I think that it really is... Um beginning to change the way things are done. And it also, we're creating opportunities for these pledge signatories to come together and share information and strategies. And so it's, it's a great project and one that's just getting started. Right. In fact, I should mention in March, we're going to have a virtual event for those law firm signatories. So if anybody's thinking about joining, I would suggest you join before March so you can take part in the March virtual, of course, event. Um, I'm also on the ABA policy committee today, and that group is looking at the task force recommendations, um, particularly the ones on what the regulators should do, because the task force report asks that regulators take action to communicate that lawyer well-being is a priority. And I think that means getting it into written policies and rules so that it's there for the long term, not just something we talk about at one CLE and move on. So... Uh, policy committee is looking at the model rules of professional responsibility with an eye on how can we emphasize well-being as an aspect of competence. Um, I'm not going to go into more detail on that yet because I think there's a lot of moving parts there, but I hope that we will be able to make some change in the model rules that kind of institutionalizes well-being so it doesn't go away, so that law professors can talk about it in their professional responsibility classes, so that, you know, CLE ethics can tie to it. And I think there'll be all sorts of benefits to institutionalizing the idea in the model rules. Um, and we're watching other policies where there's an opportunity to add that in. Yeah, so foundational. Talk I a little bit about what's going on um, in Indiana. You guys have done um, taken the lead 
and uh, some initiatives, the character and fitness questions. Yeah, in terms of systemic change, I think this is a really important one. Um, for those who don't know, the um, most bar examiners historically asked, years ago, they asked a really intrusive question about, have you ever been diagnosed with or treated for a variety of mental health conditions? Um, and those, I think the question had been narrowed by most states, but it was still there. And um, COLAP has continued to push, and I've not been directly involved in those efforts, but to tell states that question needs to come off the bar application. And um, they, it's okay to ask about misconduct or behavior that's concerning or problems with performance, but it's inappropriate to ask whether someone has a diagnosis or has sought treatment for something. And um, we went to our chief justice, I guess it was six months ago now maybe, and once we explained it to her, she said, you're absolutely right. We should not be asking that question, period. Let's take it off starting today. Let's just remove it. Um, we even had had a few applications come in and she said, just strike it from the few applications that have come in. We're not using that question anymore wow. starting today, which was fabulous. I didn't know that. That's great, Terry. She did. Cause we thought, we thought we'd have to wait till the next bar, you know, the next round because it had still been on the application. She's like, no, we'll just mark it out on this one and take it off the next one. And we're done with that question right now. And that was fabulous. And, and we're not the first state. I know New York for sure has done that. I think there's a couple others that I can't recall, but I'm hoping that the snowball is rolling, you know, and that more and more, because that's something that sends a message to law students. It sends a message to lawyers that is getting treatment is a good thing. That's a positive thing, not right. a weakness. Yeah. It's so important. So essential before they join the legal profession. So right. Terry, um, this is the capstone question. So are you ready? Okay. <laughs> so pull out your crystal ball and be, tell us, I think you're one of the best people in the country to talk about this. What does the lawyer's assistance program of the future look like? I mean, what would be ideal? And, um, and then talk about, if you can, what it takes to get there. Well, my, what's in my head is more of a, a picture. It may, it may not have the details in it yet. Maybe you two can help me flesh it out. But one of our volunteers for years has always said that her vision for JLAP, for our lap, is that it's a coffee shop. It's this friendly, open coffee shop where lawyers can stop in, get a cup of coffee, connect to others, talk over their challenges. There's no stigma to coming in. It's a very welcoming and encouraging place. And I really think that idea that is the lab's role. It's helping lawyers to connect, whether it's to a volunteer, another lawyer, a support group, or to professional treatment of some kind, or, or, or just reconnect with themselves. That's the key, mm -hmm. I think, underlying laps. And well, well-being is very individual. So it's maybe the laps are helping all lawyers to stay on track with their own well-being, whatever that means, thriving and performing at their highest level. Um, I even can envision what if laps kind of every lawyer did an annual checkup, just like you do with your primary doctor, kind of let's pause, push the pause button, sit down with someone from lap and just say, am I taking care of myself? Am I thriving or am I merely getting by or am I really sinking here? Um, wouldn't that be great? Just pause once a year and meet with somebody and have that discussion. That would obviously probably take a few more staff, so maybe a little <laughs> more funding, um, but that's kind of my big vision 
Right. Um, you know, and in the report, one of the recommendations under that, the, the LAP section was to make sure that there's adequate funding for the programs to be um, able to meet the need. Um, and a part of that need is it's the calls and it's also be able to get out and do all of this public education that is now being requested. Um, and we, when we've seen some successes in that around the country, um, particularly we had on the podcast from Virginia and how they got an increase in funding um, that, I don't know, tripled what they yes. uh, were able to do and able to hire full-time professional staff and, and that that's really made all the difference. So that there's always that, that piece to it, there really is I'll, two things about that. I need to I need to give a shout out to my Supreme Court for supporting us, fully supporting us with funding, helping us with staff, but also you know during the pandemic with laptops and speaker or uh, headsets and cameras and all the all that's necessary to do our work. Um, the other piece is yes, you have to have a lap that's well funded because we have people that are out doing these presentations, which you can't just walk away in the middle of a presentation. We have calls coming in and we also have these crisis situations that come right. in where suddenly one or two staff people may have to just take off and go deal with a crisis situation and whoever's left has to pick up whatever they were supposed to do that day. Mm -hmm. So the funding is a tricky, uh, the funding and staffing is a, is a sticky, interesting issue. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's I think it's interesting, Terry. That I, first of all, I love your your coffee shop analogy because I do think that we're ultimately trying to uh, create a space that's a very welcoming space, right? And and uh, I know how much you have been, um, you know, emboldened in your uh, in your mission uh, because of the support of your Supreme Court. And I almost think of the, the the judiciary as being the baristas in those coffee shops, right? Because if they are they are offering us a, a wide menu of options and also kind of helping with the systemic change and, and kind of, you know, being supportive. I, I, I think so much of what we've been able to achieve in the well-being movement has, be, has been because of the support of the judiciary, most notably the, the, the state Supreme Courts. Absolutely. Uh, in, in the development of the task forces. And, you know, we, we, we've, we've struck a nerve with, with the the group of individuals who, you know, let, let's be honest, are the leaders in our profession. And uh, the more that they're sitting at the table in that coffee shop as our baristas, uh, I think the I think the more effective we will ultimately be, not just in the success of the lawyer assistance programs, but in in, in engineering this culture shift that uh, ultimately is our is our long term goal. That's absolutely right. We've had such good support institutionally from our court and from our chief justice. We also have two of our justices are actually JLAP volunteers. And one justice in particular, he goes around and will speak with us and say flat out, it is okay not to be okay. It happens to everyone from time to time. It is okay to ask for help. We don't expect perfection from you. We expect excellence. And that means taking care of yourself. And it's fabulous when lawyers hear that from that level. What that a great kind of message. Leadership. Yeah, it is truly is. Well, this has been this again, uh, you know, Terry, we you are one of the pioneers in our in our space here, working in the trenches, you've been so giving of your uh, time, talent, uh, resources, expertise, and, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're thrilled to have you in our midst, we're thrilled to have you on the podcast. Um, we, we just can't say enough, you know, we, Bree and I both served on the ABA work working group and and the amount of work product that came out of that group under your leadership 
in that short period of time was, was really impressive. Well, thank you to the two of you for taking that ball and then running with it. It's been fabulous. And I'm really excited to see where, where we go in the future with the well-being. Awesome. Bree, any closing thoughts? Um, just to echo what you've said, Chris, um, we are so appreciative, Terry, and it's great to spend some time with you. All right. So we will be back in a couple of weeks with our, our next uh, podcast. A lot of a lot of great things, I think, on the horizon in the well-being movement. Uh, you know, Bree and I think uh, as we think about the long-term sustainability of our movement, there's some real exciting things happening. Uh, a, a considerable amount of outreach and conferences on the horizon. So you know, there's just a lot of good stuff happening out there, uh, both at the state level and the national level. And so uh, we, we certainly hope to be uh, part of uh, being able to promote those things that are on the horizon because it just feels like more and more things are cropping up on the calendar. And that's good for ultimately where we're trying to take it. So uh, for everyone out there, uh, be good, be safe, be well, and we will uh, we will see you on the next podcast. Thanks for joining us.